Hello, everyone. This is Noah. And I'm Simon. And welcome to the Resolve Podcast. We're your resource for all things mental health, academic success, and personal growth. Devoted to helping students thrive and build the resilience to succeed in school and in life. Brianna, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Noah. So I am located in Ottawa, Ontario, and I have degrees in health sciences and psychology from Ottawa U. I've worked in the social services field for well over a decade now. I used to manage the volunteers at the Ottawa Distress Center. I've worked in housing. I've worked in a treatment center for substance use disorders in youth. And I currently own a business called Talk Tools, where I give workshops about mental health and active communication and suicide intervention. I am also just in the final stages of completing my master's in counseling. So I'm also a registered psychotherapist qualifying, and I see clients for one-on-one therapy. I'll be opening a private practice in uh, later on in 2023. Amazing. So as part of Talk Tools, you have suicide intervention skills, specifically from ASSIST, which is really, really important organization. There's sort of psychological safety. I'm just looking here, managing difficult conversations, post-suicide support, relating and responding to mental health, responding to COVID-19 and safe talk. Lots of, you know, an eclectic uh, interests of workshops that are going on. But I really want to focus with you and with our students listening to suicide intervention. So just want to open the conversation about why did you become so interested in suicide intervention in particular within all this all of this area of mental health? Yeah, that's a really good question. And so going back to my university days, I used to take the bus across Ottawa to get to university. And on the bus, there used to be these ads for the distress center about becoming a volunteer there, but also about calling there if you needed help. And I always thought, man, that'd be something I'd love to do, but I have no idea what I would say to someone if they were thinking about suicide. And that freaked me out for a long time because we don't really talk about suicide in our society. Lots of people think about it. We can talk about that in a moment. Um, And so that kept me from applying for a long time. And I don't know what finally changed my mind, but I ended up applying to become a volunteer at the Distress Center. I ended up taking the ASSIST program, which we'll talk about as well. Uh, And that really grew my confidence. And then over the course of my time at the Distress Center, uh, I transitioned into a staff role and I started to train the volunteers in suicide intervention. And I, I personally believe that secrets support stigma. There's obviously a huge stigma about suicide. The more we can talk about it and get it out in the open, the safer people can be and the more connected we can all feel, which is better for our mental health. But the truth is that we just don't have these conversations because they're tough to have and we don't know what to say. And a lot of people fear saying the wrong thing or making things worse or pushing someone over the edge. And so I'm really passionate about teaching people about how to have these conversations so that they can be happening um, in a, on a daily basis, whether it's in a person's work or in their personal life or with their friends, um, because this topic really comes up everywhere. We can't escape it. Absolutely. Can you work us through a begin? Maybe we can start instead of sort of working backwards through a methodology. And by the way, the methodology cannot be summed up in one conversation. We're going to be going through a skeleton 
of this, but people should really consider doing workshops to get training in suicide prevention. It is an asset. It is like getting first aid. It can be a lifesaver and it can't be summed up in a short conversation. And then we're, we're, we're very clear about that from the beginning, but why don't you with everything that you've learned in the training you do, maybe work us through a typical uh, pathway for conversation. Yeah, that's a really great question, Noah. And you're absolutely right. So, so the first thing would be to notice that something is off with someone. So let's say you have a friend or a family member or a colleague. We want to notice changes and patterns in people. And the more time we spend with someone, the easier it is to notice even small changes. So things we might want to watch out for is if somebody starts to withdraw from social situations or from their hobbies or things that they enjoy. Maybe they're not showing up to work. Maybe they're not showing up to school on a regular basis. If somebody is starting to feel trapped or hopeless or helpless in their life, um, they might say things like, why bother? Nothing I do matters. I don't want to be here anymore. I can't go on. Those feelings of hopeless and helpless are really common with someone who's having thoughts of suicide. Feeling like life has no purpose, um, significant mood changes, and this can go both ways. So let's say usually somebody is pretty seemingly happy. They're usually pretty outgoing. And all of a sudden, they're really irritated really quickly. They become angry. They have a low mood. Vice versa is also true, though. So somebody who's usually feeling pretty low or down or depressed, all of a sudden displaying really happy, ecstatic emotions. Sometimes that can happen when somebody has decided to die by suicide and they're feeling some relief about their pain ending soon. So we want to watch out for these things. And this is a really short list, but basically anything that might indicate somebody feels a little bit off. And we can listen to our guts about that, too, because our intuition knows when something is off. When we notice something, we want to say something. So if we're comfortable saying to the person, hey, I've noticed that you don't seem like yourself lately and I'm worried about you. Can we talk about that? Can be a nice way to open a conversation about what's going on for them. Um, we might, and we talk about this in the trainings that, that, um, that I teach, is that we might ask directly, are you having thoughts of suicide? That seems like a really uncomfortable question for a lot of people to ask. So I can definitely understand why you might choose not to ask that. But if you choose not to ask that, the next step would be to connect that person to somebody that can help them. So if it's going to be a teacher, if it's going to be a school guidance counselor, if it's going to be the distress center, kids help phone, a therapist, a parent, anybody that you know might have some skills that would be able to help. We want to connect that person right away as soon as we notice there's changes. We don't want to assume that we have more time. So let's That's stop a very at the... simplified version of, a, of Absolutely. a framework, but I'll let you take it from there. So, so let's just stop at the conversation. You notice something is wrong. The first thing that you have to do is ask, are you, you know, how are things going? I've noticed this, this, and that, and I'm concerned. Do you want to talk about it? Um, people might say no. So if someone says no, then what? Yeah. And that's a great question. And people can say no for all kinds of reasons, right? Like maybe right now is just not a great time to have this conversation. Maybe there's other people around and they don't want to be overheard. Um, maybe they just don't feel like they have the trust with you or they don't want to burden you or they don't want to worry you. So if they say no, thinking about 
maybe still, I would recommend still mentioning that to somebody else. So a trusted adult or another friend or somebody who has some skills to investigate that a little bit further, especially if in your intuition and in your gut, you feel like, no, I really feel there's something going on with this person. And I really am worried about them. We don't want to let that go because somebody could say no for fear of being judged. And that doesn't mean they're not thinking about suicide. It just means that it's a really hard topic to talk about for a lot of people. So we would probably still want to maybe let that person know that if they change their mind, you would be here to talk to them and still probably mention it to somebody else so that maybe somebody else can try to have a conversation with that person instead. Right. And so of course you got to read the room. I think the first part is from what I remember with, uh, with assist is to explore invitations yeah. So somebody might be hinting to you that something's going on. Let's say they say no. You just want them to know, if you want to talk, I'm absolutely here. Please get in touch with me. It doesn't matter. That's the first yeah. thing. Let's say someone says, yes, I do. I am struggling. And you're starting to listen. They're talking. They're talking. Then you hear some th thoughts about worthlessness. Is life worth living? They're giving hints. So yeah. That's when we ask, right? As far as I understand, we ask. We say, are you thinking about taking your life? Are you thinking about, and 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 I want to also ask you in this context to tell us the most up-to-date, appropriate, and sensitive language to use. Of course, we can't be perfect with these things, but work me through the asking. Yeah, so we do want to ask in a way that is clear and direct. So we want to ask specifically about are they thinking about suicide? Are they thinking about ending their life, taking their own life? Because the problem is when we ask in a way that doesn't promote an honest answer, we're not gonna get an honest answer. So if I say, well, you're not thinking about doing something stupid, are you? Hmm. I'm not gonna get an honest answer because that question has judgment. It's a big judgment right statement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So clearly and directly now, I'm glad you asked about language. The biggest thing about language when we're talking about suicide is that we're trying to get away from the terminology commit suicide. So mm -hmm. commit has a really negative connotation. People commit crimes. They commit sins. Uh, suicide is not a crime in Canada anymore. It used to be until about the mid 80s. So if somebody attempted suicide and they lived, they could actually be arrested for that. It still is illegal in some parts of the world, but not here anymore. And then based on your religious or your faith background, you may or may not believe suicide is a sin and that's totally okay. And that's a separate conversation Absolutely. totally from that person. But we don't need to say that, you know, if someone, and someone might say to you, and that might be actually a sign of strength, depending on the person that I'm not going to do it because I can't do that. I wouldn't do that. And that we want to emphasize as a positive, but when it comes to asking the question, commitment, committing, it's, it's off, right? It's, it's not, yeah. it's tone deaf. Is a really negative connotation. Yeah. To it. So we want to say, um, are you thinking about taking your own life? Are you thinking about suicide? When we're referring to somebody who has taken their life, we might say they died by suicide. They ended their life um, instead of they committed suicide. Um, and so, yeah, we just want to ask in a clear and direct way. We also don't now self-harm. And I know we're not talking about self-harm today, but I do want to mention because this happens sometimes. Sometimes somebody will say, are you thinking about hurting yourself? And for a lot of people that are thinking about suicide, what they're thinking about is probably not going to hurt. It's going to end their pain, actually. They're already hurting and they're trying to end their pain. Mm. So that's also not going to quite get at the, the question of suicide. We want to be really clear that what we're talking about is suicide. 
Okay. Yeah. And because there is a difference. Um, and I want to pause at this part and just talk about if someone says yes, let's slow the brakes down. We work in the field and we know that many people are thinking about suicide. It's just, mm -hmm. it's the reality that people have thoughts from like an intrusive level and also people contemplate it. It's not dangerous to just be thinking about suicide. We do not want to treat them like they're about to fall apart and break down. We're going to get into the difference between ideation mm -hmm. and plans and actions. But at this point, when you ask, and it's we know this is common, people are concerned. If I bring it up, am I going to implant it in their head? Very common wisdom, the research, not common wisdom, the research has bared out that asking does not increase the risk. So you can make the ask if you're concerned, but when you receive that information, it's on you to learn how to regulate yourself and not freak out and be like, oh my gosh, this is the scariest thing ever. No, that's not the reality. Often when I ask people about their suicidality history in an intake, I'll say things like, Suicidal ideation is a very normal response to emotional pain. It just basically means I want to be not here. This is painful. And those same people might be having that thought as a form of coping and comfort. And it's not necessarily going to lead to anything dangerous. So I just want to emphasize for people, someone saying that they're thinking about suicide, let's just calm down. We're going to ask for more information, right? I think. Yes. Yes. You're absolutely right. So I also ask it in my intakes when I see new clients and I would say most people say yes, that they have had at least a thought. Now the research shows about 85% of human beings on the planet will have at least a fleeting thought of suicide in their lifetime. So not actually planning it out or attempting it, but a fleeting thought of, man, this might be easier if I wasn't here right now, because suicide really often and in my experience and in all the interventions I've done is not about actually wanting to die it's about not wanting to live with the pain they're living in anymore and like you said it can be a coping strategy for a lot of people when all else fails and life feels out of control the only thing any of us control is whether or not we can choose to continue living or not right so let's say somebody says yes that could feel really overwhelming so the first thing you probably want to do when you receive a yes is take a deep breath ground yourself, regulate, like you said, Noah. Um, the second question, the follow-up question I would probably ask is to see, have they already done something to harm, to end their life today or to hurt themselves or someone else? Are they at immediate risk? Likely they're not, but if they are, that's going to be a 911 situation. Yeah. If they haven't already done something today and they're not about to do something right in this moment, we want to, again, get them connected to somebody that can do a lot, like a more in-depth intervention. If that's you and you have the training, that's great. You're probably going to hear a bit about what, what's happened to them to brought them bring them to that point. So things happen in life to all of us all the time. We're all managing challenges. What have their challenges been like that brought them to this point? What has them thinking that suicide is an option for them? And then Again, we might want to ask some questions. Do they have a plan for it? Do they have a timeline for it? Are there drug and alcohol concerns? Because we know that people are more likely to do risky things when they're under the influence of drugs and alcohol. Um, what coping strategies do they have? Do they have a safe person in their life they can talk to? Do they have a therapist? 
Are there some resources we can get them connected to? And then helping them make those connections. So looking up the number of your local distress center, going on psychology today and seeing if you can maybe reach out to a few therapists, um, which is not going to be in the moment support. It's probably going to take a little while to get an appointment. Maybe they can talk to their doctor. Maybe they can talk to a parent or another trusted friend. The more people that know of this person's struggles, the more they're going to have a circle of support around them and the safer they're going to be. Totally. And so we start with the ask. And once the conversation gets going and there's potentially more said that's an issue, we first and foremost want to make sure to tell them, um, like, you don't want to run away from the conversation. You don't want to say, like, don't do that. Don't like don't. That's not the first thing to do. The first thing to do is just to make sure if there's an immediate danger, truly. And if they're telling you, by the way, that's crucial. They're telling you that means some part of them wants to take get out of it, I, hopefully. And but if they're telling you anything like there's a plan, um, it's looking more imminent. I've been doing these things. That's when you call 911 and you don't even ask their permission. You just call 911. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right, because we especially like with confidentiality, confidentiality goes out the window when there's yes. life on the line, right? Yeah. So absolutely, if somebody's about to do something or they've already done something to end their life, you would be calling 911 uh, right away. Yeah. And from there, once the, but if, but if it's not immediate, let's just say they're thinking about it maybe in the next week or two. So there's time. First of all, can you believe them when they say that? What if they're just saying that because they don't want to tell you that they're really doing it tomorrow? Like, is that your fault? Is there a way to know that? There's no way to know that, right? No. So it's, first of all, it's never your fault. It's kind of similar to doing a CPR. Yeah, that's probably important too. It's not your fault. You're not bearing the responsibility of someone else's decision here. No, no. Because ultimately it is that person's decision at the end of the day. Um, but again, if you're listening to your gut and you have that feeling like, oh, I feel like they're lying to me or feel like it, it's worse than they're making it sound, we definitely want to get somebody else involved. We don't want to hold on to that. And I, actually, I would say you don't want to hold on to this alone anyway, right? So debriefing this after with someone that you trust that you can talk to is going to be really important as well for our own mental health in, in doing this work and in supporting other people, because this is a a lot of people do take on the responsibility and the burden, and it can be really stressful on the caregiver or the helper to have these conversations. Right. So this is a bit of a, a point where we're going to get to is where do we go here or there? Once they've said, yes, it's not imminent. So you haven't called 911. If you're comfortable, do you start to ask them like, talk to me, like what, what's going on? What's happening? Let me, I think it's called hear their story. Like what's happening? Tell me about that. So how do you, how do you do that? Yeah. So we want to ask questions, open-ended questions, help them feel comfortable. Don't rush them. Be patient. Um, using some active listening. So not getting distracted, being fully present with them, listening to understand, not just listening to reply, which means not being focused in your own head, but just being focused on what they're saying um, asking open-ended questions like, tell me about what's been going on for you lately. How have you been feeling? What challenges are you up against? How bad does it get? How long have you been feeling like this? Um, and just encouraging them to give you as much information about their experience and what they're going through right now. And the more that Often, they, yeah, sorry. Cool. Sorry. I was just going to say, everybody wants to feel heard 
right? So even just having somebody notice that something's wrong and ask about it is going to go a really long way. I think we often underestimate the power of listening. We often feel like we have to fix it or find a solution, but actually just giving somebody a chance to feel heard and listened to is really, really powerful in helping somebody who's feeling hopeless and helpless and disconnected and withdrawn. Absolutely. Um, in Hebrew, the word for listen, Shema, has the listen internal, like I think Rabbi Sachs of Blessed Memory talks about all the different meanings and definitions of that. And our most important line and phrase in, in our tradition is Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Listen, listen. The first word is listen. It talks about the oneness of all of, of all of us, all of reality of God. But there's this fundamental power of listening that cannot, cannot, cannot be underemphasized here. Listening is not a, a passive experience. It's a movement. It's an action. It's a behavior. To listen is behavior. It's attention. It's helping relieve loneliness. It's it's not just, you don't need to get to solutions right away. You just need to ask and listen and be there. And when you hear that story though, there's this idea, as far as I understand, about looking for turning points. Some revelation of words of hope or some tiny learning about their connections in their life. Maybe there's other people that they are really connected to as well, as well as these turning points. What what do we do with that? How do we turn that into some momentum for the other way? Yeah. So hopefully as you're listening to somebody's story, you start to pick up on maybe a future looking plan that they have, a goal that they have, a hope for something or some kind of uncertainty. Now, the fact that they're, like you said, no, the fact that they're talking to you means that they are uncertain. So they could be thinking about suicide. They could even have a plan for it. But the fact that they're still here and having this conversation and they haven't done it yet means that some part of them is has some hope that this doesn't have to be the last effort that they make. So we want to figure out what that is. So maybe it's a goal to get a new job or have a conversation with somebody about something they're stressed about or uh, maybe there's some bullying going on. Maybe, who knows? It could be all kinds of things. Maybe they need mental health support. So we want to figure out what, what that life connection is saying, um, what their reason for living is. Now, it's important to remember, we can't tell anybody else what their reasons for living are. Um, I can have an idea of what your reasons for living should be, but you need to tell me what your reasons for living are because all of our reasons for living are a little bit different. And once we find that out, we want to help move them towards safety. So I might say something like, you know, it sounds like it's really important for you to be around until you find out if you get into school next year or not. Can we make a plan to keep you safe so that you can still be here for that to happen? Or it sounds like if you were able to find a new job, things would be a lot easier for you. Can we keep make a plan to keep you safe so that we can help you find a new job, whatever that thing might be? And then we're going to shift the conversation into safety. And so that would look like. But let's just pause on that. That's so yeah. powerful. It's like we want to extend their life. We're not. First of all, it sounds like if you jump right from here, their story to the turning points. Oh, well, you know, you don't want to kind of be eagerly jumping. Let's let them talk, get it all out and create a coherent sense of self within relation to this experience. Let's hear the story. And then let's, when we're paying attention, and this is part of active listening, is kind of summarizing and and taking a huge, I think in motivational interviewing, it's like bowing, it's like a bow tie that you take all of that information 
And then maybe you can pick up on the turning points. First, you want to be in the pain with that person and know that they're with you there before jumping to the solutions. But once you've seen these little openings, you want to grab them. Like it sounds like they said something about school. Can we grab that? Can we extend life three more months, six more months? And during that time, maybe major positive things can happen to them. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that's the idea is that we want to create some safety. We don't want them to commit to living for the rest of their life and however that long that's going to be. But just for the next little while, can we create some safety so that maybe something can shift and change for them? Um, like you said, a lot of people deal with suicide thoughts for a long time and things can shift and change in our lives that maybe feel better, can alleviate some of that pain without the person needing to turn to suicide. And that's our hope. And so the safety plan part of this, so you've really found some openings and they're interested in, they're buying into maybe something different here that they could do. What does developing a safe plan look like? Yeah, so we want to manage some risks and risks can be, do they have a plan for suicide? Do they have they thought about how they're going to do it? And can we help disable that plan? So if it's going to be um, with pills or drugs, can we get rid of the pills or drugs or give them to somebody else so that they're not accessible? If it's going to be with a weapon, can we get rid of that weapon so it's not in the home anymore? Um, so the plan we want to ask other risk factors can be drugs and alcohol. So are they using, are they drinking? Can they use less or drink less? Can we make sure that they're not using alone? Can we make sure that there's naloxone kits around? Um, do they have any mental health concerns? So maybe this person has depression or anxiety or PTSD or something that's making it a little bit difficult for them to cope. If they have a diagnosis of something, that means they have a mental health professional that saw them at one point. So maybe that person could be helpful to them right now. Maybe there's a psychiatrist or a doctor or somebody that they could get in contact with again. And have they attempted before? Because we know that previous attempts are risk factors for future attempts. So if somebody's made an attempt at suicide before, they're more likely to attempt again. And that's because once we do something once, it becomes a little bit less scary. It's easier to do a second time. And then we want to also build up some protective factors. So do they have strengths available to them? Do they have hobbies? Do they have skills? Do they have things that they're really good at that we can get them involved in? Um, do they have supports? Maybe you're going to be a support. Maybe there's a doctor or a therapist or guidance counselor or distress line or somebody in the community and, and that's families, help them. family members, families, faith leaders, all those kinds of things. Um, and <clears throat> do they are there any like immediate changes we can make for them? So even just today, could they go for a walk out in nature? Could they? Um, get out of their home for a little while if that's going to be safe for them and just get a change of scenery. Is there something in their immediate environment that we could make a quick change that would make a big difference? So just looking at those protective factors. Protective factors are kind of like a seatbelt. So a seatbelt only works if we actually fasten it. We can have protective factors, but if the person's not actually using their supports, if they're not actually using their strengths, it's not going to be actually really that helpful. So we want to just mobilize these things around them so that there's a bit of a cushion um, and they can begin to cope with some of the pain they're feeling in a way that's different than suicide or maybe safer than suicide. What happens if you've done all this work and they're not saying they're going to immediately do that, but they tell you, 
I'm not getting rid of the pills. I'm not getting rid of the gun. I'm not getting rid of this thing. What happens there? Yeah, I think that, and that again would be a judgment call based on the situation. That might be an escalation to 911 again, because that might indicate that they're not willing to keep safe in this moment and that there's some immediate risk happening there. So you kind of want to, in a way, once they're 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 really trusting and trying to move within these turning points and reach out and get the help that they need. If you can, in the moment, like either go there and be with them, swallow, throw the pills in the garbage with them, like something visceral that they do with you. Is that like the ideal situation? Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully we, whatever we can do to create some space between them and that plan so that when they are feeling crappy again, the pills are not as accessible. They're not right there beside them. Um, the more we can disable that, the harder it's going to be for them to make an impulsive decision. And these turning points, I imagine, can be really strong. There are people that, for example, no matter what, will say, I'll never do that to my family. Uh, or I'll never do that because I, 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 God doesn't want me to do that. There's all sorts of reasons. And I think it's really important when you're doing this to step out, step into their belief system and look at that as their source of strength. Whether you getting into suicide as a full, like as a whole, like a vow, like the vow, like the values around suicide, these are big conversations about what do we think about this? How do we understand it? You know, our, but there is an implicit value that when we are sharing here and talking about one value that we are imposing is life. We value life. And so we're looking for anything, anything that says this is there's a transcendent sense of meaning. It's a friend. It's a, it's a, it's a course. It's a school. It's, it's spirituality and religion, whatever it is. The only value that we want to bring to the table in a sensitive way is anything that's going to keep you here is good. Yeah. Right. Is there anything else other than that, that we like, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. I'm just trying to think what else, what else other than that are we implying in all of this conversation? Oh, I think that, you summed it up really nicely. No, actually, I don't think I have anything to add. And and I think what you're getting at is that it's not up to our judgment. So some your reasons for living might be different than mine, but that's not up for me to decide, right? And whatever their reason for living is, um, we're going to help. We're going to help them use that to keep themselves safe. Absolutely. So we've kind of, and I think there's an action at the end, which is about confirming the action. So we kind of review a little bit, not like we talked about this, then we talked about that, but more the plan. How do you do the confirming action in a way that doesn't feel pushy or overwhelming to the person? Yeah. So the confirming actions at the end is really making sure that they understand the safety plan going forward. And the way we do that is just asking them, Okay, so I know that we've had a really big conversation today. We came up with some things you're going to do to keep yourself safe. Could you just repeat the plan to me so that I know you know what it is and get them to say it? Maybe we're going to write it down together. Um, really, we just want to know that they're able to keep safe. It's the final check before they're going to go off and do you know, make the calls they need to make or do the things they need to do to feel good. Maybe we're going to check back in with them tomorrow or the next day or whenever we're available and see how they're doing. Um, but that final piece is just a check to make sure they know what the safety plan is and they're ready to go through with it. And I think follow-up is massive. Follow-up is massive. 
maybe this is a little unromantic, but I work with so many people that have hard time remembering, remembering to call people back or doing things like that. You can put it in your to-do list. You can set an alarm for a week from now that says, just call friend, call friend. That that follow-up means that it wasn't just a momentary act of caring, but it's extending into it. And obviously everybody has their own sense of limitations. You know, some people are feel that they're abs- ultimately responsible once this information has been shared and they sacrifice a lot of their health and or mental health. And we can talk about the value of that, the difficulties with that, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the follow-up is a major step in stage for this. Yeah, it's another way to show caring, to say, I'm still thinking about you. I'm here if you need me. Um, and to really like show through actions your care for someone. So we've gone through a big, big picture. Um, as far as I understand, there's something called the ta- living works. It's connected to assist, the task model, which... I just think for memory aids, um, it's really important. Again, please go get extensive training. Everybody and anybody. There's nobody that shouldn't have suicide prevention training. Absolutely. Um, but if for just a short acronym, just to know, uh, I've seen the TASC model. I'll put it into the – actually, I'm not allowed to. It says don't reproduce it. That's interesting. Um, it says to – T as in tune into the possibility of suicide. So be open and receptive to signs that others may need help. Watch for things they say and do that may show they're thinking about it. Trust your instincts, as you were mentioning many times, Brianna, and don't be afraid to reach out. So that's the tuning in. Then it's asking. You know, you're saying you wish you weren't here. Tell me about that. Ask directly if you need to. Ask and learn about it. What's going on? Then it says here, and I wanted to ask you about this state. So we have T as in tune in. A is an ask, and then state as in state that suicide is serious. Now, do you have to do that explicitly? Maybe this is not a science, but I wonder that in the conversation we just had about going through that, um, saying, oh, this is serious. Does that, do you need to say that? Or is it, do you take it seriously by then asking about the story? Like it says, express that this is serious. All thoughts are very serious. Maybe that contradicts what part of what I was saying, which is to kind of, Maybe at the end, if you need to, but I was thinking more just like, let's not be, oh my gosh, this is so serious. Wouldn't that scare people a little bit? Can you help me with that part? Yeah. So what that's referring to is just acknowledging the importance of what they've just told you. So I think what you were saying was right. We don't want to freak out about it and go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, no, you can't do that. It's more about saying, wow, okay, thank you for telling me that. That took a lot of courage to say, this is a big deal. And I want you to know that I'm going to be here to support you. So it's just acknowledging the severity of what they said, um, not making it like a huge freak out moment, but just acknowledging, wow, this is really serious. And I want you to know that I am going to help you get help because it's really important to me that you get the help you need with this. Absolutely. So we have T is for tuning in to the possibilities, the morning signs, asking learning about it, and then state is in state it's serious. I would also add an S here if I can. Um, again, this is just me riffing on this, that story. Get the story, yeah. learn about the story, state and story. Be serious about it or just serious. Take it seriously, learn about the story. So we have T is in tune in, A is in ask. Uh, S is in state that it's serious, but I would just say serious. Take the story in, it's serious. And then C is connect to help. That's everything else that we talked about. Um yeah, I've just been very into this because I'm doing a lot of uh, memorization uh, in, in Jewish sources, and they talk all the time about these simanim, these signs that you should be, you know, learning aids, memory aids, how to memorize. 
Um, people learn so much information. I want people to remember. So TASC, T-A-S-C, is, uh, is our acronym of the day. Can you share with us, Brianna, anything that you want to tell students directly? So we're talking about general suicide prevention. What do you want to tell students? What do you want to say to them if you could say anything? Yeah, I just want to acknowledge that, um, you know, our youth in Canada are really at high risk for suicide. It's out there. It's not something that's just happening to somebody you don't know. It's in all of our communities. Suicide is the second leading cause of death in our youth in ages 15 to 24. Um, the first leading cause of death, this is, I find this really interesting. So suicide in this age group due to stigma is more likely to be categorized as an accident than as a suicide. Suicide is the second leading cause of death in this age group. The first leading cause of death is accidents. So That's I'm not, mysterious. I'm, I know I haven't done the research myself. I'm I'm not a scientist in that way, but I think we can confidently say suicide is probably the, the leading cause of death in this age group, um, which means we do need to take it seriously. Um, there's lots of training options. So Noah's mentioned the assist training, which is a two day training course that goes through the full intervention model. There's also Safe Talk, which is a half day course. It's made by Living Works as well. And it talks about recognizing the signs, asking the question and getting somebody to an assist trained person. There's also a 90 minute self-paced module called Living Works Start that people can just do online on their own time. It's that's really, what I was really quoting basic. There. Yeah, I think that's, that's where the, from there. Yeah, that's where the task comes from. Uh, there's also another program called Assessing Suicide in Kids, which is a two half days. It's a virtual program. Uh, I'm a trainer of it. There's a few different trainers located around the world. And that program really focuses on suicide in kids ages 5 to 15. So if you work with kids, if you have kids, if you're around kids, that might be a good add-on program that adds some different information about how kids conceptualize death and suicide. Um, and like you said earlier, Noah, these programs are recognized. So if you're looking to get a job in the social services field, or you want to be a therapist one day, you could put these on your resume and employers are going to recognize them just like they would recognize first aid or CPR. And in fact, the research shows that you're more likely to need to do a suicide intervention than to ever need to do a CPR intervention. And yet so many people are trained in CPR, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think we absolutely need that. But this training is really needed as well because you never know when you're going to come across somebody who might be having thoughts of suicide. So I think the main the main message is if if wherever you are in this, if you're suffering or someone else, if you're God forbid suffering, you really like listen, you can reach out for help. It's really important. And hopefully the people listening, when that person, if they come to you, learn how to help them. Uh, and it's not all on you. Of course, it's not all on you. And part of the conversation about suicide prevention is to connect them with people that know way more about the topic and the situation. But it's keeping them safe for now. And you are a, a lifeline and a light line here for that person. Any last words of hope that you want to share in all the work that you've done, all the conversations that you've had on this topic with people in, in the real world? Anything else, words of hope that you want to share? Just hope itself um, that there's people like you and me and so many others in the world that are doing this work, that um, conversations, listening, so important, that there are resources that can help, that nobody's alone, you're not alone. If you're thinking about suicide, you're not alone. 
Um, and there are people out there like Noah, like me, many other people that want to support you. So please don't feel like you need to deal with this all on your own. Mental health is just as important as physical health. In fact, the two of them are so incredibly linked. We can't possibly separate them. And you're worth the help that you need. Um, life gets really crappy for a lot of people and there's a lot of reasons for that, but you don't have to go through it alone. Thank you so much for speaking to us about this very, very important topic. There will be links here, both to Brianna's work, as well as to the proper trainings that you can all receive. Okay. And of course, a disclaimer, this podcast in all of our mental health, learning and educational content is not therapy and is not a replacement for therapy. Please seek professional help if needed. Go to www.resolve2vs.ca to get the support you need. And that's all for now. We hope this was helpful in some small way. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you are listening. Make sure to keep updated with all of our content on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And of course, come check us out at www.resolve, that's resolve with two V's, .ca, to learn more about how our services can support your needs. Till next time, take care. theme song for this podcast is done by the band Mokuse no Maguro in their song Midnight Empty Street. <laughs> <laughs>